Welcome to the Hailka Coach Podcast. We're going to go deep. We're going to go heavy on subjects like awareness, energy, awakening to higher states of consciousness, all for the purpose of walking us through our journey from awareness to enlightenment, one moment at a time. You are no longer alone on this journey. I will be with you every step of the way. All right, on today's episode of Hayoka Coach, we're going to deal with a real heavy subject, a very important subject about dealing with loss of loved ones. Today on the show, I have a dear friend of mine named Stuart. He and I are going to talk about a couple of losses we've had in recent years. And we're going to have a deep discussion about first what happened to each of us so we can paint a picture of what we've been going through. Uh, both on a, you know, emotional level and a physical level and how it's affecting every aspect of our life. And then we're going to talk more generally about how it's affecting others around us and just literally how it's affecting the quality of our lives in general. And and then we'll go in a little bit deeper because I, I think what's happening with this grief cycle that I've been going through is there's some patterns that have been developing and I've noticed some patterns of behavior. So I want to deep dive into some of these as we poke into them as this podcast moves on. But in the meantime, what I want to do is I want to say that we all suffer loss. We've all been through this. We've all experienced the, the pain of losing someone that you love. And we all know what happens after that, you know, the grief cycle, we all know the steps of the grief cycle, but it's what we do within those steps of the grief cycle and how we truly deal with that pain day in and day out and how it affects us in our everyday life um, that I really want to talk about. I really want to, I want to dig into this because I've had, you know, it's been months now that I've known Stuart. We've had a couple conversations. He and I have gone on a, on a hike together and it was it was very moving for me and he has said the same about the hike and you know we just had open conversation and we just let you know whatever it was that was on our mind flow out and obviously we both knew that we shared a loss of a child together so the conversation just naturally flowed there and and out it came and and that's kind of what brings me to why I asked Stuart to join the Hayoka Coast podcast, because I felt strongly that day that, sure, we gained a lot from that. But in the, in the what, weeks that it's been, I'm thinking maybe others could learn from this too, right? And, and you guys know my podcast is all about saying the hard things and going deep and digging in and we do it by example right and if we can't lead with our hearts we can't expect others to do the same so uh let's dive in on this i'm going to go right to introducing one of my dearest friends Stuart preston he's a very busy guy he's got multiple things going on uh in his life one of which is stoned ape reports a very good a very good podcast i highly recommend you go check that out i'm gonna have Stuart talk on a couple of these in a moment and then the stone date comedy Stuart has a quite a comedy slant uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna name it i'm gonna let Stuart talk about how his comedy is aimed and then we're gonna go into uh an ian uh memorial uh ian preston memorial fund we're gonna talk about at the end 
And I, I just wanted to repeat that uh, Stuart is a very close friend of mine. Uh, we're going to dig into a, a really strong, heavy subject. So without further ado, I'm going to just let Stuart take the floor and introduce himself and tell me a little bit about his podcast and, and let's just get talking. How does that sound, Stuart? Uh, sounds good, Michael. I appreciate you inviting me here. It's such a, a heavy topic. I hate to say so good to be with you here, but you know, it's uh, something we got to talk about. It's important. Yeah, for sure. So I, they know I dive right in, man. And I, I don't want to sugarcoat any of this and I don't want to yeah. put plastic wrap around this. So I'm just going to throw the mic to you, so to speak, and say, tell me what happened, brother. Just tell us all what happened. Well, um, diving right into it, four years ago, four and a half years ago, uh, my son died by suicide. Oh. And it was something that um, we, we were not expecting. You know, probably... 50% of suicides, there, there's no sign. You know, you can always look back and say, well, what about this and what about that? And, and as you know, as a parent, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, blaming myself or questioning things that I did or said or didn't do or didn't say, you know, that maybe could have, could have solved this. But yeah, um, December of 2015, you know, a, a bomb went off in our family, in our lives, and we, we lost Ian. And it's uh, indescribable. You know, friends come to me and they say, I can't even imagine how you feel. And I, I, tell, you, I tell them, you're right. Yeah, you sure. can't. There's no imagining how bad this is. I mean, it, it sounds uh, dramatic, you know, drastic, whatever. But it's uh, losing a child is, is, is pretty uh, life-altering situation. So it's, you know, my, my wife and my daughter and I, you know, we have stuck together through this, I've been lucky to meet, you know, people like you, Michael, because there's only certain people that can really, you can talk to, you know, you mentioned the hike that we took together. So for a couple hours out in the Arizona wilderness to be able to talk to somebody that truly gets what you're saying is, uh, is special and unique and, and most people don't get it. But yeah. the reason I talk about it in public, you mentioned Stone Dave comedy. I have a show called the Stone Dave show. I talk about my loss. I talk about the unique way that I've, I've dealt with my grief and my, my whole goal is to get it out there. Cause if we talk about these things, you know, then we can do some good. So I'm grateful to you that you're getting this out there and that we're talking about it. Yeah. Thank you, Stuart. And so much of what you said, as you know, resonates with me. I, I lost my daughter a couple years ago as well. Um, it's the, how we deal with this from this point forward. You said one of your things that you mentioned I wrote down was life altering. And that's just it, right? I mean, it, it's, it goes against the natural order of things mm -hmm. is the way I like to, I mean, it's the only way I can really look at it. I mean, you're supposed to have children, they're supposed to have children and everybody's supposed to die when they get, you know, 70 plus because it's been a long time coming. They've been ill and everybody sort of expected it. But when right. we have our children die or when we have somebody that we know or we're close to die, suddenly it breaks the natural order of things and it sends a shockwave through, obviously, the people that are so closely involved to it. But as we know, this shockwave spreads out far and deep. I, for, for one, at my daughter's funeral, I had no idea 
she was connected to so many people. Mm. Absolutely none, you know, and it's, it's not that I didn't know about her life, so to speak, right? That's, you know, every child has their own, you know, section right. of the world that they have on their own. But it was just like, wow, you know, I was just like, she had been touching so many people in different ways, you know, mm-hmm. good, bad, or indifferent, you know, she had a reach. So her death didn't just impact me as the parental unit, right? And the devastation that comes with that, I saw that it was like a nuclear bomb that, that percussion just went out and hit everybody. What did you sense in, in that regard in your situation, Stuart? Well, yeah. I mean, we didn't really have a funeral. We just had kind of a ceremony. It, it happened to be at a church, but that's only because, you know, you had to find where you could find. Right. Um, you know, probably had two or 300 people showed up. All of them were touched. And so, yeah, you see all the lives that are that are affected and... I don't know, so many levels to this. So the the first one is, uh, you know, a selfish thought that I have in my life as a father and, and a brother and a son and friend. I always feel when some, when I see somebody in pain, you know, obviously I, I want to help them. Yeah. And in this, I felt like I was at the pinnacle of the mountain of pain. And for the first time I, I felt kind of like no obligation to make anybody else feel better. Mm. You know, I kind of felt like, you know, here I am dealing with this. You're dealing with it. You know what I mean? I got to deal with my own pain before I can think about you. I got to put the the air mask on my face first, right? And so it's the first time I ever felt that. Um, Then you see all the the people who are hurting from grief. Devastation. Absolute devastation. People could not. I remember I I called Ian's boss. No, I didn't even call his boss. I called this blog. It's a tech blog here in town. And I want, cause Ian was really big in the tech industry. He was a software engineer. And so pretty much everybody knew him. And I called this tech blog and I said, Hey, you know, Ian died. And I don't know if you guys want to make an announcement. And the blog was owned by one of his former bosses and the, the blogger, she called him and he was going to a movie with his family and, and he called me right, right away in just in tears and in disbelief and, and big explosive grief just coming out of his vocal cords. And it was, uh, so you see, you see that end of it, right? So, and then probably the last piece, you know, so I mentioned my son died by suicide. There are people out there who are suicidal, who are depressed who are struggling and this is kind of like a beacon or a life vest or something for them. You know, the, they light up. It's a strange thing that happens as, as parents come up to me and go, Oh my God, my daughter has tried three times or they come to me and say, I have been struggling with this myself. You know, how, how can I get out of this? And it's like, there's this weird moment of, it kind of like shines a light out there. So all the people who are struggling with this can see like, okay, maybe I can talk about it since this happened and Ian's family is talking openly about it. You know, maybe I can talk about it also. So there, there's all these different levels of grief and you're right. It just, it reverberates and like, like waves on a pond, you know, it, 
the waves don't stop. They just keep going and echoing and going back and forth. And grief is just, it's not one of those waves, natural waves that, you know, dies out. It just keeps reverberating. Yeah, for sure. And yours was four plus years ago. Mine was two plus years ago. Yeah. In those waves. What I, what I find is, I, I still have, obviously, and it will never go away, this level of sadness within me that, you know, some days isn't as prevalent as others. But I, I liken it to having an organ removed, you know, just forcefully just mm. ripped it out. And now yeah. my body's trying to reacclimate to missing an organ. You know, one third or one half or all of my heart was ripped out. And now my body's like, oh, oh man, what do I got to do to keep this organism alive and it just it's a struggle at times to remain centered when the sadness really hits you'd mentioned one thing about me first when when ian died and and i've told you this face to face so sorry brother when ian died you were the kind of person prior that would always go to others' aids first and say, you know, everything will be okay. You'd mentioned that I couldn't do it this time. I, I, I wasn't going to do it this time. Me first, my oxygen mask first. And that's the way it's supposed to be done, you know, by all textbooks and, you know, they, whatever, whatever materials you want to read or websites or whatever they tell you that's the proper protocol. I didn't do that. I, as soon as my daughter died, I, I immediately went blank. I disconnected from my heart. I knew how much it was going to affect her mother and brothers and sisters and her children that I immediately went into savior mode or whatever it's called. You know, I, I don't know where now I am going to make sure everybody else is okay. I didn't really know I was there, um, you know, because it was, it's such a shock, as you know, when a child dies that it paralyzes your senses, right? It, it did mine and I was walking around numb. I didn't know a day or hour, didn't even care. Mm. And, you know, it was at the reception or whatever, you know, the, whenever we talk after the funeral, the spillover. Yeah. That, you know, I'm shedding tears with everybody and I'm taking turns going through the crowd doing, as you said, making sure everybody's okay. It was about the last person that came up. My sister-in-law gave me a big hug and she had cried into my shoulder and she said, have you cried yet? Hmm. And oh man, that Stuart, it hit, man. It hit right there like a shockwave. And then I like, and I'm actually kind of doing it now. It like shuddered my inside. And then, you know, of course there was a little bit of outflow. I grabbed a hold of it right away and choked it back down. But it's like you said, and I, I hadn't even realized or remembered that until you mentioned that and I wrote it down right away. It's, it can be what we do, right? And that's these mechanisms, that's these patterns that I was talking about in the beginning that what do we do to survive every day? Do we protect ourselves like I did? Do I say, yes, this is happening, but I can't let it affect me because I have people that I need to support. 
And well, and I went through that too. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I uh, so what, the the protecting me first was really the, the extended family and friends that I was looking at as I was delivering the eulogy. Mm. You know what I mean? All these people, like you said, that came, you realize how many people it touched. But then inside of my little circle, I have me and my, my wife and my daughter. And for us, I did put on that shield. And gotcha. I, I felt like okay. I had to be the strong father. You know, the, the, the first call I, I made was to my wife because I was there at the site where my son died. And my wife and my daughter were still at home. So I had to call my wife and, and give her the bad news. Oh. And in that conversation, I said to her, we're going to be okay. We're going to survive this. You know what I mean? Together, we're going to stick together. We're going to be okay. And I put on my armor, my battle armor to protect myself. And I kind of hid in that, that strong husband, dad role yeah. for a while. Now I was still, I'm an, I'm an emotional guy and I'm good at talking about my emotions and I'm good at listening to other people. So I wasn't distant and I wasn't completely separated, but I did play that role of, I got to be strong in which, and you may have noticed this too. And maybe some of the listeners are when you're dealing with grief in the family, I find that when I'm feeling really weak and deep in my grief, my wife will cycle into strength Mm. and she'll be the one that'll kind of keep the family going. And then when she starts falling into the deep grief, I cycle into the strength. So we, we had our ups and downs and we, we worked with each other and supported each other. Um, but emotionally, like what you're talking about, I still had these moments of, I got to be here. I got to be strong for the family. And that did prevent me from really diving as deep into it as I, as I could have. Yeah. And thank you for the follow-up. I didn't mean to blanket, you know, your whole. Oh yeah. No, I, that's the way I spoke. Statement. Yeah. But yeah, perfect. And, and wow, you just, you just hit home with me because what I did is I put my armor on immediately and I love that analogy. I mean, I, I speak about actual armor tattoos I have on my shoulders as ways that I've protected myself through my life, you know, without knowing it at the time. Yeah. And I immediately put on my armor and I liked the way that you talked about the way your wife and you cycle through the strength and weak cycle because it wasn't for about a year into the grieving process when I started to get to the point where, and it's not that this didn't happen in iterations between, but it wasn't until about a year when we started to go through the first, and you know what I'm talking about there, the first birthday, the first Christmas, where yep. pain all comes back as if it's happening all over. It wasn't until, you know, the months leading up to those first that I started to crack open and realize that I haven't really opened up my armor. And then the pain started to rush back into my heart. And, you know, then I wanted to put my armor back on, but I knew I had to do the work. And, you know, you know, from the conversations with me over the months that I'm not afraid to do this work. But there's also a part of me that has a reflex of protecting others first at the cost mm -hmm. of me. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I had to, and this is what I'm talking about, these mental models, these patterns that we get stuck in. This one in my life was keeping me from fully being able to face what happened. It allowed me to keep this shield that I hid behind of I'm protecting my family. But really, this shield was over all of us. 
and it was covering me too. And it wasn't allowing me to go deep. And when I started to go deep, it hurt, man, mm-hmm. as you know. And then it was remembering that I have to cycle this. But to tie it back to your point, and this is what was brilliant about it, is what I realized when I first started to face it, because I couldn't drop that armor right away, you know, because it was like, yeah, I'll hold it just a little bit lighter, you know, or, you know, I won't deflect everything that hurts me. I noticed when I just got too tired, it finally got to the point where there was just one, one hard day too many. And I just went home from work with my armor down. It was like, mm. forget it. And then it happened exactly like you said, and it didn't click for me till you said it. My wife walked to me and said, things are going to be okay. Mm. I didn't have to. I didn't have to for all that time be holding up my armor and holding all that on my shoulders. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. It's amazing how that happens. <sighs> Makes you wonder how many other patterns that we have that are affected by this that we may be unaware of. I know that when I first got back to work, uh, not counting this shield that I was just talking about of not living in my heart, you know, cause there is that, you know, you go, I went back to work and it's like, as you were saying, they don't know what to tell you, you know, they yeah. don't know what to say. So I think there was enough discussion about it over the month or so that I was off of work that pretty collectively they said, each one of them were like, we have no idea what to say, man. I'm sorry. And that's mm-hmm. pretty much, and that's, that's all it can be when you lose a child. Because it's, as you said, Stuart, nobody can understand this unless it's happened to you. Nobody. You know, and it's, I don't, I don't judge people that don't know how to deal with grief and they come to a funeral and they try giving you advice and all of that. You know, it's just them trying to be helpful. So when this, you talked about these, we talked about these impact ripples that go out and how it affects not only us, and we talked a pretty good deal about inner balance. When we talk about, when, when I always reflect this to you a little bit, when it comes to inner balance of how our, how our systems operate moment by moment, how has this layer of grief affected your quality of existence, for lack of a better term? Well, it has uh, totally altered the quality of existence. Um, you, you question, I question, what kind of quality can it ever have again? How could I possibly have yeah. any quality of life without Ian? You know, such an important part of our lives. Um, you know, my wife built him with her body. I, I can't imagine what it's like for a mom. You know what I mean? I, you and I are grieving, but I feel like moms, you know, you feel like an organ got ripped out of your body. I feel like a, a good chunk of their souls gets ripped out. Yeah, I agree. And I, I don't, I feel so bad. I don't, I don't know what to do. So part of me says, well, you know, my quality of life is gone. It, you know, there, there's no pretending that I'm going to have that, that quality. Cause like you said, there's so many things tied to it. There's, 
kids and grandkids and, and weddings and stuff and help and advice and, you know, so many different things that we're going to be, that are, that are never going to be. And, and just uh, the daily missing of kiddo, you know what I mean? It's just, we were, we were close, you know, and it's, uh, so part of me is like, well, F that there is no, there is no quality of life left. It's gone. Um, and then the other part of me, I have what I, what I tell people and what I, what I express in my show is that what I've done is I've learned to heal with my grief. So the grief is a layer that's always there. Um, sometimes worse, worse than others. You know, the company that Ian worked for there at the end just came out with a new product. And my wife and I, we call those landmines when something goes off and, and spikes your grief. Mm. And a landmine went off and I felt so sad that, that they had moved on without him, that they created a new product that he wasn't a, a part of. And so there's always these landmines that come up that just kill me. But, you know, what, I, what I've done and I have found some peace is just learning to live and heal with my grief, knowing that it's always going to be there, that it's a, it's a part of who I am. Like somebody who lost a limb or lost an organ or lost a chunk of their brain or whatever, my loss is I lost my son. And so for the rest of my life, I have this, this life where I have lost my son. And so... I have just been working on finding ways to, to heal with, with that, that concept. And I have been able to do so. And I've been able to find some happiness and um, some, some moments to, to spend with my wife and my daughter where, you know, we can truly appreciate and love each other and go out into the world and, and have, uh, you know, some level of, of content. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. I, I know what you mean about those moments, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, of course. that's, wow, it's actually a shocking way to look at this because if you take the totality of what we're talking about, where we look at what our quality of life is after, after each of us losing one of our children, Mm-hmm what we have are occasional moments where we as a family can actually share a heartfelt moment because we all may be having our hearts open in that moment. Mm-hmm. What I find is the timing, the alignment of those open heart planets, so to speak, when mom's not grieving or papa's not grieving or you know, somebody else isn't grieving where we have to use that balancing energy to, to pull them back up so they can have some joy for the day. Mm-hmm. When we all have our hearts aligned, those moments are fewer and far between than, than I really would like, you know, and that's, yeah. and I think that's kind of the answer to this, right? I mean, to heal is to just kind of striving to seek more of those moments, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah, anything, anything you can find. Because like I said, I don't know that, you know, the grief is never going to leave. It's always there. It's always yeah. a part of everything. But yeah, to be able to kind of integrate that, the essence of the grief into the whole self, I think kind of enables, enables me to 
to have those moments and have understandings and um, be able to share, you know, with other people and connect with other people. Yeah. And help hopefully to do as you said that, you know, the, the light kind of spread through the, the community around Ian's suicide and it, it brought to light that within the community that he touched and anything that could bring attention to that could also bring potential healing. And that's kind of what I want to leave this on because there's a lot of people out there that like Ian and, and like my daughter are really suffering inside. They don't have a friend to turn to. They don't have a parent they can turn to. They don't have a, an anything. They don't have a pet they can turn to. The people they turn to give them bad advice or they hurt them even more. Mm -hmm. They feel excluded. They feel, you know, what are some other things you could add to this? I mean, what are, what are some things? What are um, some things some of these people feel and how can we it, It's hard to know. Out? Yeah, it's hard to know. I think that they feel that there's no hope. And because we, we see suicides with certain um, circumstances. So you've got people, I would say, like Ian, who are um, depressed or, or suffering um, some, some mental health issue. And they don't see life getting better. They don't see anything getting better. And they're like, well, if it's going to be like this, then I'm done. And you see that in people who are bullied and you see that in people who have terminal illness. And so I think a common thing with probably 90% of suicides is they just feel like there's no, there's no hope for the future. And so I would just say to anybody out there listening, obviously Michael's going to give out the, the hotline, but uh, you just got to know that things will get better. That, just give it time, give it a chance. And even if you're feeling worthless or like your life doesn't matter, Michael and I are, are two people who can, can testify to the fact that people do deeply care and losing you would be an absolute devastation to so many people, even though you don't believe it. You don't believe it. You don't think it's true because your brain is lying to you. Um, but you just got to give it, give your brain a chance and know that, that uh, eventually things will be okay. So reach out and talk to somebody, get some help, even if it's an anonymous person at the other end of a, of a toll-free number. Just make a call, talk to somebody, because you feel like there's no hope, there actually is hope. So just take another breath and take another breath and get to that point. Thank you, Stuart. I don't even think I want to add to that. I'll just say that from my perspective, Every single thing that ever happened, I would take it back in a minute. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that has ever been done, said, heard, or will be done that ever warrants this action. It just doesn't. There is forgiveness. There is grace. There are people that you can reach out to. No matter what you think you may have done, no matter what others have done, no matter what you're going through, no matter what your circumstances are, that have you feeling like there's no other choice. I assure you there is. And I assure you, everybody around you will listen to you if you're very clear with them. 
speak from your heart, go to them and tell them what's going on. Be very clear and be heard. Absolutely. If you need assistance now, I strongly urge you call the suicide hotline at 1-800-273-8255. I'll post those numbers below. I'll post links to other help organizations and Stuart. My heart to yours, my brother. I, I can't thank you enough for, for joining me here today and sharing your story with me and those that are listening and hope that we can make a better tomorrow for everybody that's listening. Yeah, likewise, Michael. I appreciate you having me and, and I appreciate what you're doing here, putting these important issues out there for everybody. It's, it's, uh, it's powerful. Thank you very much for doing that. All right, Stuart. Take care, my friend. You too. Bye, everybody.